0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories small windows into vast universes it's season five of the cosmic library available soon wherever you go for podcasts
2: welcome to the maris review i'm maris kreisman and oh what a joy it is to be joined today by Elif Batuman. Her first novel, The Idiot, was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction in the UK. She's also the author of The Possessed Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010 and holds a PhD in comparative literature from Stanford. Her second novel is called Either Or. Welcome, Elif.
3: Maris, thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
2: I am so excited about this. And one of the first things that I did to prepare for this interview was go back to my notes for when I talked to you about the idiot for the paperback release. Mm -hmm. And I saw the top of my notes um, had a really important issue. And I feel like I can go no further. We we have to start here again. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about fingering.
3: Oh, yeah, fingering. Um, Yeah, I actually had some thoughts about whether to explain what fingering is. because uh, So finger, for the people who don't know, is a command that you used to be able to use in Unix when when email was text-based instead of web-based. So you would open up this little window and you would have to tell it some kind of, there'd be a prompt, and you would have to tell it some command to get into your email system. And you could just say finger and then the person's username. And if you were on the same network, or even if you weren't on the same network, then you would just say finger and you put their whole email address and it yeah. would tell you where they'd logged in. And it was this really sinister, creepy thing that everyone did and nobody talked about. And in The Idiot, I explained how Sagan is, she's obsessed with this guy. So of course she's like fingering him all the time. And um And fingering, of course, is reprised in either or. And then I kind of wondered whether to explain it. And I think in the first draft, I did explain it again. And I I had in general a lot more explanation because I was thinking that people would read it. I wanted people to be able to read it without having read either, without having read The Idiot. So I thought I should have lots of explanation. But then it just began to seem like unnecessary. And it seemed like even if you even if you read it by yourself. You can just be put into this world, and people are fingering each other, and you'll figure it out.
2: Yeah, it's it's like uh, putting a foreign language into an English text. You get context clues. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it was such a good early tool for college students who were obsessive.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and I think for everyone because like you just had the sense of wanting to know like, what is everyone else doing? Like what's, what's the normal thing to do, i.e. what is everyone else doing, i.e. And, and you could get a lot of information from Finger. It would tell you like what building they were in, like if they were in a particular office or department or someone else's room.
2: Yeah, it's, it's funny, because I feel like people are really concerned about, you know, surveillance technology now. And that was pretty creepy. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was
3: really creepy. And yeah, and in retrospect, it just I feel like it wasn't acknowledged. I don't think anyone talked about how creepy it was.
2: No, no way. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was at the top of my notes for the idiot, which we definitely have to circle back to. Um, I had written that I had written about alcohol as a plot device. So Yvonne, the Uh, man, older-
3: The love interest, yeah.
2: Yes, (laughs) like, how do I describe who he is? Are these people, men
3: Men and women have gotten so sort of, they're so hard to use.
2: (laughs) So weird. Um, So in The Idiot, he constantly wants Celine to drink because he kind of understands the power of alcohol to cut to the heart of the matter. Uh-huh. And she does not give in in the idiot. And then. Yeah, so we- that's
3: really interesting. I don't remember. I think that, you know, maybe that conversation informed the writing of either or, it may well have. I, I definitely was thinking about the Kreutzer Sonata. So when I was writing Either Or, I was thinking a lot about um, this Adrienne Rich essay, Compulsory Heterosexuality, and just in general about second wave feminism, which I, um, it was like, you know, Me Too was happening right when The Idiot came out. And that was when I decided to write a sequel. So all of these things were very much on my mind. I was in, um, you know, I was, I just met the woman with whom I hoped to spend the rest of my life. In the next room, and <laughs> and um, after dating only men my whole life, so um, I was going back and rethinking a lot of things. And and part of what I wanted to do in the the um, sequel to The Idiot was to unpack how some of the different assumptions that I made, how I arrived at those, how those things seemed like the right thing to do. And in general, I was thinking a lot about how, how much of behavior that we think of as being natural or inborn or part of human nature or universal is actually some super specific thing that some guy made up for some reason, which is a really political realization because anything yeah. like, oh, who is it serving? And at that point, I was I was rereading Tolstoy's Kreutzer Sonata, where he talks about how, um, how as a young person, he learned to be, I forget what he calls it, like a lecher or something, but like how he, basically he's 15 and his brother takes him to a brothel for the first time. And he's like, I have to do what? Like, are you kidding me? And it just seems like horrifying, but then he gets used to the idea. He's all the people who he admires are acting like this is this necessary, unavoidable, honorable thing. So of course he has to do it. And everyone goes to the brothel together and they all smoke tobacco and they all drink vodka. And the first time you do it, it makes you sick. And he specifically draws that, um, analogy that, that like the first time you smoke, it makes you sick and then you have to do it and it becomes this great pleasure and you talk about this universal pleasure. So to what extent is um, is what I used to think of as, as love like this particular kind of um, heteronormative relationship to what extent that we that I took as being natural and part of human nature. How did I get that idea? What were the forces that contributed to it? And alcohol is a big part of it. Like the parties are a big part of it. And Satan is going to these parties and once she starts going to parties, you know, the alcohol becomes inevitable because, as you know, she realizes at some point, like, first she's like, wait, why is everyone drinking? Why do I have to drink this? And then she's like, oh, no, I get it. You have to drink at parties because people are insufferable. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way you can tolerate it. And actually, you know, it's, I don't know, what I really like about Celine is that she lets me kind of, like, now I'm so, like, at this age I just go to a party and I'm like where's the alcohol like I'm not thinking about that stuff anymore but I really liked going back to that earlier period of time and and that mental space and being able to question it all and and to kind of see it as the nightmare that it is that like you're surrounding yourself with people who for whatever you know they might be great people but in that setting they're all tormenting each other and the only way it's kind of possible to survive is to poison your body in a way that Occasionally kills people, you know, like kids die at those college parties from drinking so much. It's kind of dark when you think about it. Incredibly. Yeah.
1: Hey guys, I want to tell you about a product I'm using literally every day. I started taking AG1 because just with everything going on in my life, I am really bad about consistently taking vitamins. The best part, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It's kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what's in this stuff? In one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things, which is great for someone like me who's always on the go especially with all my running, it's really important that I'm getting my daily source of vitamins. Um, But just because I'm so scatterbrained and organized chaos, I just completely forget um, unless I have something that just really makes it straightforward to get everything I need. And AG1 is lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free or gluten-free. And the best part because, well, maybe I don't say I'm a healthy either, At the same time, I really do focus on what I eat, that the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good is really important to me. And the extra benefit is it supports better sleep quality and recovery. It also supports mental clarity and alertness. And that's because Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And best of all, it only costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. You're investing in -in all-in-one nutritional insurance. And because I said I really do care about where the things I consume come from, Flight Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old-growth rainforests as well as donating to organizations that help to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. In 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And right now, you can reclaim your health too and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you one free year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/slash Maris. Again, that is athleticgreens.com/slash Maris. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
2: She even changes how she sees the, the men in her life. Like I I really love the growth um with Yvonne and um how in the beginning of the book she can still see him in everything she's reading everything she's experiencing the music the everything is about him mm-hmm. and that's a great way to express e- express obsession mm-hmm. um that that you might feel like is something like love
3: yeah yeah totally I think I mean what we call love it's so specific and you know that it's this really important thing and I don't know another book another book I was thinking about a lot when I wrote this was *Eros and Civilization by Herbert Marcuse where he talks about how like Eros could be this really diffused force that's like over your entire body. And it could be, you know, sitting on a bench outside in the sun or like all of these things. But because just as capitalism has split the the day into work hours and leisure hours is this tiny little part that's at the end where you just have to like drug yourself and watch TV. So too have we deadened our whole bodies to make them instruments of labor. And all of Eros has been concentrated onto the genitalia and then like, and genital, there's this genital supremacy that he talks about that like it's not that he the idea is that it's not natural you know we have this idea that like of course it's natural like the birds and the bees but but like it it there's so many constructs and there's so many like ideas that we don't talk about it's like nobody tells you what love is at the beginning of either or Satan's like why isn't there like a department of love at the university (laughs) Nobody explains to you what it is. And you experience, like, you're at that age, you're so. I mean, I think this whenever I'm teaching with students, it's just, you remember it when you see their faces. Like, I just remember how lost I felt and how desperate I was, like, how much I wanted and how much I needed and how I had no idea where to get it. And you're feeling all of these feelings and you don't know how to categorize them and you're trying so hard to interpret everything. And love becomes this very appealing kind of like, I don't even know, like a filter to see things through or a bucket to put things, I don't even know what's the right reductive metaphor, but it's um, it's really a kind of ideology. And you know when I was reading second wave feminism, like Shulamith Firestone talks about romance and love as like a way that women are depoliticized. It's, it's something that's, that wastes their time and keeps them out of the public political sphere and keeps them tied up with their, problems that, that are private and thus not political. And that's another thing I was thinking about with either or and that I wanted to, to explore is the extent to which like the way that these girls like being and thoughts are subsumed by these by these guys who, who really, I mean, they're not actually doing anything wrong. They're just doing the role that they're doing, but they're like having a completely different experience. And like the girls are just like, this is their whole brain space and like what could we all have been doing if we weren't thinking about that like what I don't know what could I have been doing if I wasn't fingering all those
2: people I'd be a nuclear physicist right now I mean I hope
3: not but yeah but maybe (laughs) like maybe Roe wouldn't be way you know rolled back now if like we had been more interested if we hadn't been pushed away from politics and caused to think that the stuff that we were interested, i.e. love and the personal was not political, then maybe it wouldn't all be controlled now by these like sociopathic people.
2: Amen. Not to be a downer. <laughs> um, but but you, you show Celine um, kind of figuring out even what an emotional, what, what, how to be an emotional person, how to respond to many different things and what's, what's good about feeling so many feelings. Mm-hmm. And then of course, what is the opposite? And there there is some mention of hysteria and it's like, oh yeah. This has been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about, so obviously there's a curriculum for um, sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, how, do you do, how did you devise uh, the reading list and the other pop culture? You know, the,
3: the project of this book was to explain to me how I, you know, like around 2017, 2018, I was like, how did I get sold this bill of goods? Like, how did I think that I was a literature person and not a politics person? And why did I think those things were different? And I, you know, cause I, I didn't grow up under a rock, like feminism was there psychoanalysis was there. I, you know, I wanted to sort of restage the different, like the invitations and the missed encounters. And the, you know, I wanted to show Céline trying to read Proust and not getting into it because um, because I'm really into Proust now. And I know I wouldn't have been then. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, so, and, you know, I think I even, I, I tried to read Swan's Way at some point and I couldn't. So, but, you know, I didn't remember all the details. So I had to reread it trying to imagine that I was at that point. But um, a lot of the the curriculum that she reads and the reading list that she reads is just stuff that I read because I I didn't want to change too much because I felt like it would mess up the experiment. It was was important for me to know how if you put those ingredients in, this is what you get. And so I was kind of reverse engineering based on like how I think now and what I remember. I was trying to like um, restage what it would have been like because I don't necessarily remember all of it. Um, there was a class on chance. Um, I don't think the syllabus was exactly the same. I actually um, was emailing with the professor about something else. And she, um, speaking of like digital excavations, she found the syllabus, but it was written in um, Corel. What was that called? Corel Word Perfect? Word Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, so she had to get some program that unzipped it and it was like corrupted by the time it came out. So I couldn't really see what was, what was on it. Um, it all checks out right it's all like, <laughs> but um, I definitely read Kierkegaard's either or and, um, and it was like huge for me and I, I think I went a little bit nuts after I read it I read Nadja by Andre Breton, I also remember like I was just doing another podcast with the guy who was like why are you talking at such le-? he was a, a English professor, why do you talk at such length about this appalling novel. Why is it so important to her? But for whatever reason, like, I guess it's like microclimates or there's little pockets of where like these things are influential. I just remember seeing that book everywhere. It was like a physically very striking book. I still have it here. I mean, this is a podcast. So your audience is really going to appreciate how I'm holding this book up to my uh, Zoom window, but it has this very memorable like text-based cover. It had photographs in it, which was this new thing. This was like, before Zeybald, this was one of the books that influenced Zeybald, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. and the, the question that Celine has about living an aesthetic versus an ethical life, and the um, that comes from this friendship that she has with her best friend Svetlana, that is based on an actual friendship that I had where we did have these kind of roles, like, and it was actually my friend who sort of made them up for us, that you're living an aesthetic life and I'm living an ethical life, so I was actually researching books that were talking about leading an ethical life, so that... You know, Nadja was that picture of Dorian Gray where the Dorian also like seduces some girl and she like, I think she kills herself. And um, yeah, Diary of a Seducer. So it was pretty, it was was on the biographical side, I guess.
2: Incredible. And yeah, there there, there certainly is a pattern in so many of these books written by men. It's not subtle, right? It's not subtle at all. It's like, here's some literary criticism. (laughs) Um, And and I love how maybe you can talk about how you, looking back as the person you are today,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: kind of go through the thought process of what it would have been like to encounter those texts as a college student.
3: Yeah, I mean, once I got in the zone, I actually did reread a bunch of the books. It was kind of interesting. I um, I bought a copy of Nadja and I reread it. And then independently of that, I, I thought my college copy of Nadja was like long ago gone, but it turned out it was in my mother's apartment and she gave it to me. And so I could compare the underlining and it was like the same stuff only in... Huh. Uh, like my marks now were like very kind of discreet and in the earlier version, I was like,
2: what the fuck? Or like, you know, there were
3: like <laughs> question marks. And, um, so I I guess that person is still pretty close there. Like it wasn't actually that much work to find her. Um, I guess the, it's it's a kind of thinking that I was doing, you know, because the whole time I was reading like Shulamith Firestone and Adrian Rich and these texts that I hadn't read before, part of what was in my mind was, oh, these things are like completely revolutionizing my way of seeing everything and making me see my life differently. But another part of it was this deep consciousness that those books had been around since like, you know, before I was born or since my my early childhood, and that I had been aware of them in some way. And so I was always in my head trying to map out like, wait, what was it about this that seemed like it wasn't for me? Like what was and and in, in part those books are about that. You know, they Shulamith Firestone talks about Um, the depoliticization is an active process that happened that, you know, that women and girls undergo and that there's like um, different, there's the myth of emancipation and the myth of emancipation says that feminism already happened. Um, You have nothing to complain about. If you complain about anything now, it's just special pleading and it's actually gonna hold you back. You should just get with the program. I really believe that. Another part of the myth of emancipation was you see women were liberated and are they happy now? No. That's because happiness doesn't come from groups and from group identity. It comes from individual work. And you really, if you're not happy, you really have to work on yourself. And that's also really ties in with the Cold War because there was a lot in America, people, they didn't want people joining groups and getting too, you know, socialistic. So all these things work together.
2: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you can't picture, especially at that time, the idea of taking like a women's studies course
3: yeah they existed and there were people in them but it was this really specific kind of person it wasn't like it wasn't mainstream
2: it, it it's kind of incredible how the world has changed since then in that regard
3: really incredible i mean but it's also incredible how much the world had changed since the 70s between the 70s and the 90s which is like also really scary like so it could change back there's like these waves of backlash absolutely
2: um and, and and even the idea that when Céline thinks about what a novel can be or should be, mm-hmm. there are so many kind of masculine ideas about what makes a great novel or what makes a great writer slash what makes a great novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, and I mean, all these ideas are tied up. And it's kind of like, there's a part where she talks about like, Um, one of her friends is dating someone in a women's college. And she's like, wait, why didn't I apply to women's colleges? Like all of these things are tied up with being like, she said and really has all of these ideas that I, I didn't fully understand until I read the second sex more carefully than I had before. Like, you know, you read excerpts of it in college and you think, you know, what it's about, but like, I just, something about it hadn't clicked, but, but there was really, I really had this idea that rigor and, and abstractness were masculine and that things that had to do with women were more kind of specific and like, yeah, of course you could go to a women's college and be nurtured and be more secure. But like, if you're really tough, you'll go to Harvard. And of course, everything is gonna be, it's gonna be more rigorous. Everything's gonna be set up for men, but like, it doesn't matter. You're gonna work harder and do everything better. And like, yeah, you could be taking women's studies classes or you could be reading Virginia Woolf. But like, if you're really hardcore, you're just gonna read Dostoevsky and like do all of the hardcore like male things. And that's how you really excel. And I don't know if it was i think for me it was partly tied up with like um like Simone de Beauvoir in the second sex she talks about it being this fear of like the man is the absolute and the definite and if you don't tie yourself to that in some way then you're going to be nothing you'll be annihilated and just not exist and that's why the like mania to be always dating a man or always be in a relationship with a man comes from is this need to be allied to a member of the superior race And I think that that kind of played in for me with various sort of like immigrant issues Mm -hmm. um, because I I felt like, um, you know, a lot lot of my friends at Harvard, their parents were from other countries and there was like a special stress on, because Harvard is like the only school in America that everyone has heard of and like other kinds of so like, you know, it, it means something there. And there's this like, and there's this sense that the place that you came from or that your family came from is obscure and might be swallowed up by the like non-West and that you have to like establish your space and like establish your presence in the most universal, hallowed, um, yeah, just like legitimate rigorous spaces and they're all masculine in some way.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about, oh, here's, let, let me rephrase it this way what do you think Celine would think of autofiction oh that's a
3: really good question i mean i mean maybe that's partly why i had her read proust i don't know you know i i think she would have felt really freed by it because in my in my own life, like a big, so I wrote the first draft of The Idiot when I was in my early twenties and I had a lot of trouble with that version of it. And when I think back now, a big problem that I had was that I, I didn't, I thought that it wasn't okay, or it wasn't enough to just write about my own experience. I thought I had to make it universal or extract from it somehow and apply it to something else or like bring some added value or like transmute it through my imagination. And that, you know, I've been thinking about those ideas a lot lately, and they're also extremely ideological. Like I've just been thinking to what extent in America we got those ideas from the, prefaces of Henry James Mm -hmm. and Henry James who really talked about you know as a writer I have this kernel that comes from truth and then I use my artistic talent to elaborate on it but if you look at Henry James like he was living at a time when he could not you know he was gay and he couldn't be he couldn't write about what he was thinking and what he was feeling so he had to transmute it and that was like that so of course he had a whole system about why that was the only way he could create things so and then the, the when henry james was really became a big pedagogic staple in the us it was after the the gi bill and with the growth of the mfa programs because they wanted to teach writing as a technique and then a, a big part of it was also like anti communist it was like we don't want people writing socially conscious stuff people should be writing super composed um, skillful artistic things so um So all of those things are are super variable and come and go in and out of fashion for different reasons. And I think that if Sinan had known that it was okay to just write about someone like her, another thing that, you know, a thought that I had in real life that I gave to Sinan in either or is like when I was in creative writing classes, I I would resist giving the characters Turkish names and having them be Turkish. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, no, I want her to have a a universal name like Wendy or Karen Mm -hmm. and like I, I really thought of them as universal names. It didn't, I didn't know that that was like a, you know, I didn't know about post-colonialism, which is another sort of missed So Like Selin has a friend who's from India, who's really into post-colonialism and Salem just doesn't get into it anyway. Um, but then I, I would, I would find that the stories that I was telling didn't make sense if they were about someone called Wendy, like it just didn't, none of it fit you know and like they have to be from some other country the only country I know enough about is Turkey so it would just like and then it felt like this doom or this like why am I like this that I am impossible to extract from my own writing and everyone else is able to extract themselves from their writing and only I am not able to and there, you know I don't know so I feel like there's a lot about the the discourse of writing now with autofiction and there's just so much more immigrant writing I feel like there's a lot that sitting would have benefited from
2: absolutely yeah she has a line something like you can't write down like a a raw emotion you have to kind of disguise it and elevate it and turn it Mm -hmm. into art
3: yeah exactly which is like some guy's criticism of prozac nation like he's still at it (laughs) yeah yeah i think like he i was reading about it and they're like they well now she's
2: Oh, yeah we don't have to talk about that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and so yeah tell me about um and summer of of being a tourist mm-hmm. in, in turkey yeah So
3: at the end of the book, she goes to, she's a researcher for Let's Go, which is the student run um, travel guide that Harvard used to put out. I don't know if they still do it or to what extent they still do it. Um, I was a researcher for the Turkey guide. Um, I I did this route in in central Anatolia Um, and it was a very peculiar experience. So the reason that I gave that experience to sit in either or was she's learning about she's basically looking for the rules to follow and where are the rules going to come are they going to come from books or um and then she finds herself in this weird position of being the reason she gets the job is because she knows turkish so like she's supposed to be like an expert but she's like what she isn't she doesn't you know she's never lived in turkey just visited over the summer and then she goes there and she has to like um sort of present an experience of of Turkish, not life, like of, of tourism in Turkey that's palatable to very cheap Americans who always <laughs> want to get things for free and who view that as a form of virtue, which is a discourse that they don't really have in Turkey, like travel in a shoestring. Maybe they have it now, but like they didn't really have it then. They were like, what, what like why why do you want to stay in a nice hotel? Like it and um And she finds herself in between these two discourses, between the people who work in the tourism industry in Turkey and the American tourists. And at first she's very kind of naive that she can, or optimistic that she can kind of explain, you know, like for example, in in Turkish, touristic is like, touristic is a compliment. You want to go to a place that's touristic because it means it's going to be fancy and nice and have lots of international people. But if it's touristy, it's bad, right? The let's go, you have to avoid everything that's touristy. And she's like, oh, I can just explain this to people. And then she, and and they'll understand and I'm gonna like solve this problem. And then in the end, nobody understands, you know? She tries to explain to the Turkish people and they're like, oh, you wanna fuck? And then she tries to explain to the American people and they're like, yeah, but where's the authentic experience? You know, like it just, it, it doesn't work. Um, and, I guess, you know, I've been thinking about the role of imperialism and the novel and the novel as a Western form. And I guess that was, you know, Celine writing for Let's Go, she's kind of grappling with that. You know, the thing Mm -hmm. that that attracts her about the novel and that attracted me as the novel is it's the space where you could theoretically juxtapose and relativize all the different contradictory stories that you hear, which is like, Something that was really appealing to me as a kid and is why I love novels when I was a kid is because it gives you the space to just reconcile everything and to yeah just to juxtapose and to have everything represented and to see it all at once with humor and generosity, but you're automatically. You can't actually present everyone equally because that form itself is a Western form because those are the people who are doing that first. And the reason those are the people who are doing that first, like the reason that the Western people were the first people who had novels and you know philo- philosophy books about human nature and you know the universal rights of man. The Reason they had all that stuff is because they were so rich, they'd amassed so much wealth, and the reason they'd amassed so much wealth was by you know extracting it from other parts of the world and from other people. So it's super complicated, you know. Like there are really idealistic things about the novel and about enlightenment philosophy and about universal universalism, but they have this origin in this like deeply, I mean deeply fucked up situation, the colonial situation that that everyone was aware of, like not consciously, but but it, the knowledge is there. And it, it gives these, these texts and these forms this very complicated, unpleasant history that we have to find a way of living with if we wanna continue using those forms.
2: I, I found that there another struggle in in terms of doing a, a let's go voice or an unofficial guide mm-hmm. voice is that, there's, there's absolutely no room for nuance. And reading all of these examples um, really made me think about the internet today and how we are so used to that tone now in a way that felt like so revolutionary back mm-hmm.
3: then. Yeah, that chatty, savvy tone. I mean, I think it was, I think that chatty, savvy tone, like Celine is very enamored of it that was another thing that I had to do. I I ordered those, all of those books are obviously out of print and it was COVID so I couldn't go to a library and look at them. So I just like bought old copies that from eBay of like the old unofficial guide and let's go. And and when I was looking at them, I mean, they seemed kind of like, I mean, they're written by kids. So I don't want to say they're like hateful, but like they're, they're, they seem to be betraying uh, a way of looking at the world that I think that those people as adults would probably not be proud of. But I could still go back into the mental state of how I was at that age and that this thing just seemed really cool. It seemed really cool that they were talking about things that way. But I think that actually, you know, like, We shouldn't forget how awful the 80s were while we're talking about how bad the 90s were. The 80s were worse because there was like more of a, I feel like there was more of a carryover from like the 50s actually to the 80s where it was like there was this like nice sanitized story and you had to be positive and everything was in this kind of official language and people were saying, you know, have a nice day and this really like, kind of aggressive, but completely unironic way. And then just that 90s ability to like acknowledge everything and be like, okay guys, we all know that this is the thing with this. Mm -hmm. Like, however, it's presupposing that you share all of these ideas, which necessarily that's gonna get you in trouble when you're like presupposing some weary familiarity with something that's like not gonna lead you into a great place, but but it was very refreshing coming after this like kind of enforced optimism and cheeriness.
2: Yeah. before I ask you for book recommendations I'm going to ask you the hackiest question which I'm sure you're getting over and over again but but I need to know will there be a junior year
3: you know I there I don't think there's going to be junior year but because for a bunch of reasons but I I do think there will be another Celine book at least one more Celine book I'm there's already a, a sort of novella that's set in 2000-2001, so it's Céline's second year out of college and it's set in San Francisco. And it's she's first trying to write the book about her freshman year of college, a book about the stuff that happened with Yvonne. Um, and it's called Tituba because, you know, she thinks she has to add all this stuff to the novel to make it a novel. So like, she brings in all these historical elements and it ends up being about like the Salem witch Trials because she thinks she has to like go, she has to relate the stuff that was happening with her and Yvonne to some kind of like historical trauma that happened in the geographic area. So it's like, um, to be like Austerlitz or the wind up bird chronicle. So she ends up writing this book about the Salem witch trials, um, but can't finish it. Um, So that's that. Um, and I, I, I do think I'm going to return to you know like I've been working on some some kind of more memory books or you know stuff that I don't really know is it memoir or novel um, about the time that I lived in Turkey and which was 2010 to 2013 And I've been thinking about revisiting some of that material from Selin's voice because I just find that when I when I write as myself, I in a nonfiction persona, I take this point of view of like having to explain and have the right answer about everything. Whereas when I write from Céline's point of view, I feel it's easier for me to get into that point of like bewilderment and kind of outrage and like, what? This is like this Mm -hmm. that feels like, it just feels much more productive and, and less scary, you know, I'm scared as myself of making some incorrect pronouncement, but Selin's not really making pronouncements. She's just explaining how these different things make her feel, and you can't really argue with that. I mean, you can, but yeah, (laughs) I think I might, um, Selin might move to to Istanbul in her 30s and, yeah. Oh, I
2: can't wait. Um, (laughs) I love, thank you so much, and please share some book recommendations with us.
3: Oh, thank you. Um, Well, the book that I'm reading right now is called um, The Eighth Life by Nino Haratishvili, and it's an extremely long uh, novel. It was written in German. The writer is born in Georgia, and it's about three or four generations in the life of this Georgian family in the 20th century, and um, I started reading it because someone recommended it to me. Someone sort of mentioned it to me, but also I'm going to Georgia later this summer to actually talk to Russian dissidents who ended up there. So and this book is so but I didn't, you know, I wanted to read some I, I, I want to familiarize myself a little bit more because I don't know very much about Georgian literature. Um, So I'm going to read some more old stuff, but I wanted to read something new too. So um, this book is really incredible on the relationship between Georgia and Russia and the Soviet Union, because this family, they go through, you know, 1917 and the whole Soviet period. And there's like, you know, there's a super pro-Soviet guy in the family who becomes this like high up functionary. And then they there's like a dissident and like part of the book is in Moscow and part of it's in Tbilisi and then one person ends up leaving and going to the west and it's it's really interesting to see how all of the spaces and dynamics um, interact. Um, another book I read recently was Post Traumatic by Chantal V. Johnson. I love that book. It's a first novel um, about uh, really about about family and trauma and and how to metabolize them but it's a first person it's a very funny and kind of dark first person novel about a um, attorney who represents mentally ill people in in a state institution of some kind and um and like and her chatty relationship with her best friend who's a lesbian and her dating experience experiences, internet dating experiences, and her relationship with her family, and just coming to terms with this trauma that is is in her past, and I just thought that novel is so revolutionary, like it it treats, because novels really uphold family in the same way that they uphold empire, like the classical novels, the the classical, the 19th century novels that Mm -hmm. really made the novel tradition, they uphold family in the same way that they uphold empire, you know, they're not really questioning them, and it's really interesting to see a novel that's challenging family in that way.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. and, and, and um, both either or and post-traumatic have wonderful tributes to Fiona Apple, so <laughs> <laughs> that also excited me.
3: Oh yeah, totally, yeah. And she has that wonderful Kate
2: Bush riff
0: too.
3: Yes, she does. Yeah, so great. Should I do
2: more recommendations? No, that that's perfect. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. This was delightful. Sorry I talked at such length. That's what I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.